selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast presented by Salesforce. My name is Peter King. I work for NBC Sports. I'm going to be joined by Miles Simmons, my buddy from NBC, and we are going to dissect everything that is even remotely important about the National Football League. But before we start, for those of you who are watching this podcast right now, you will notice that I am wearing my uh, my Ohio Bobcats shirt. And I decided to wear the Bobcats shirt because some college football team in the state of Ohio needs to well represent the state of Ohio. After the debacle in Columbus last week, <laughs> the Ohio Bobcats will journey up to Detroit on Saturday to play the mighty Toledo Rockets at noon Eastern time in the Mid-American Conference Championship game. And I bring this up for a few reasons. Number one, I'm a Bobcat. Number two, the Ohio Bobcats have not won the Mid-American Conference Championship in football since 1968. Wow, I, I mean, just think. The last time the Bobcats won the MAC championship is the month that Richard Nixon won the election to win the White House. So it has been a while, and I doubt even Miles Simmons can remember the last time the Bobcats won because he was not born yet. Anyway, Miles, welcome to the pod this week. What do you think of my Bobcats? Uh, well, I, you know, I frankly, I didn't know that it had been that long since Ohio had won the max. So, you know, good luck to the Ohio Bobcats for sure. Uh, but yeah, somebody, somebody has got to represent the state better than that. My home state. Oh my gosh. That was, that was such an ugly loss to Michigan, man. Oh no, not good. How amazing was that game? And really? how about that running back from Michigan who runs for like oh 9,000 yards in the fourth <laughs> quarter? And, you know, I mean, as I wrote in my column, he's never going to buy a drink, a meal, or a house in the state of Michigan for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is for sure, man. I mean, I've never been that much of an Ohio State fan despite growing up in Cleveland, but, you know, I always want Michigan to lose. So it hurts me more when Michigan wins than when Ohio State loses, but that, that was particularly <laughs> ugly. <laughs> hey, so... And I just want to give one other little message about the game on Saturday. And it's a shout out to LeBron James. LeBron, 
I know how much you love your native state. So I expect you at noon Saturday to be on the sidelines at Ford Field in Detroit cheering on the Bobcats. And you could even borrow my shirt. I'm not going to the game, but you you can borrow my shirt if you want. Anyway, enough of this silly collegial collegiate nonsense. Uh, Miles, we got a lot to get to today. First, our guest this week is going to be Joe Horrigan of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, one of the real keystones and one of the guys, probably the guy in the United States of America who knows more about pro football history than anyone else, will be joined by Joe at the midpoint of our pod to discuss a new show he has to highlight some of the real interesting things and some of the interesting little pieces of historical stuff that the Pro Football Hall of Fame has uh, they've just started a new show to uh, illuminate a lot of those things. So we'll be joined by Joe Horrigan. I'm going to tease the topics of the day. Number one, the Colts are dumb. Number two, Tua and the Niners this week. That is the sneaky, great game of the week. I love this game. Number three. Here comes Joe Burrow. Number four, here comes Deshaun. Number five, Mike White is throwing a monkey wrench into whatever it is the Jets are going to do long-term. We'll talk about Mike White. Hey, listen, Travis Kelsey is an all-timer. I love this guy, and we're going to talk about how good he is. And did you know that the Chargers got their two-point play that won the game and kept them in the playoff pennant race. They got that two-point play from another great two-point player, Doug Peterson. And I'll explain that. Uh, number seven, whatever it is. Next, Josh Jacobs is the man. Number eight, Jalen Hurts is huge in the MVP race and he's making it a race. Number nine, Jerry Jones. Number 10, I don't have a number 10. But let's get into a few of those things right now. And Miles, listen, I must admit that as we record this on Tuesday morning, as you know, my Sunday nights are a little bit busy. So I always need to try to catch up on my sleep and rarely do I stay up till the end of the Monday night game. That is exactly what happened this week. I slept through the last three quarters of that game. Anyway, I had to catch up this morning, and I said, why in the world did Jeff Saturday want to take his timeouts into the locker room with him after the game? So I know you as a student of professional football, Miles. I know that you have to have an opinion about how the Colts handled the clock down a touchdown in the last minute of this game. Peter, as I was watching that, the thing that kept popping into my mind was Jim Ursay at the introductory press conference for Jeff Saturday to become the interim head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. And he kept saying, I, we said maybe once, let's call it, I like 
that Jeff Saturday doesn't have experience because it means he has no fear, right? Whatever that means, you know, NFL head coaches are scared. They do this, they do that. I think we saw how Jeff Saturday has no head coaching experience through that entire two minute sequence there. I, I don't know what exactly the Colts were trying to do other than, yeah, you can run things down so that you're not giving uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers a chance to respond, right? If, you know, we were going to go into another situation where the Colts had gotten a touchdown late and they were going to go for two and they were either going to win it or lose it. Yeah, you don't want the Pittsburgh Steelers to then have a chance to go kick another field goal and then potentially win the game. I understand all of that. But when you have Matt Ryan running which he really shouldn't be doing much of anyway and then he gets up <laughs> pull a timeout you know, get your play yeah. right you have to be able to get your play that you feel the best about matt ryan should have done that talking about something hey yes. miles matt yes. ryan should have done that himself yeah. he just should have done that himself yes. you know that's a veteran yes. quarterback yes. move you got to get up yes. and call the timeout and again look i right. know that's not his job but if you see that the sideline's not doing it, I, insanity. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry I interrupted yeah. you. Well, no, but it's it, you're right. I mean, he has that authority. It's the same sort of thing that we, we kind of talk about with Russell Wilson, where at what point do you start putting things on the QB? Because the QB's been in the league for so long. Right, Matt Ryan has even more experience than Russell Wilson. So you know that you have an inexperienced head coach. You have an inexperienced offensive play caller. Give yourself the time to figure out what is the right next move. And, and the fact that they didn't do right. that just speaks to that inexperience and that you have from the sideline, right? So I just – this is the kind of thing where it's like, all right, well – why don't you promote guys who have never done things before as a head coach or as a coordinator or been in the building or things like that? It's this little stuff. It's little granular details that come to fruition in the end of games that really can set you apart. And that's one where Jeff Saturday definitely failed the test. Here's the thing I think that really, when I watch this, and I've often thought about this when I see clock management failures at the end of games. It might just be very anecdotal, but for some reason, more and more this year, I'm noticing that coaches are saving their timeouts and saving mm -hmm. them for absolutely nothing. You know, there <laughs> is a 32-second gap in the last minute, 15 of this game that was totally unnecessary a 32 second gap 32 seconds lost because they viewed like they were uh you know the indianapolis colts viewed that they were handling the timeouts like they were guarding the gold at fort knox and that really bothers me uh, you know so first of all i mean of all the things that have happened so far in the first three games of Jeff Saturday, and look, I don't think it's been a debacle at all. Um, I think they've been representative, competitive, whatever you would want to say. And so he hasn't flunked the test. But there's one thing that you see that would really kind of bother me. 
The fact that they let that much time go off the clock needlessly, it simply says that although there's a lot of things that Jeff Saturday is very good at, um, you know, getting his team to believe, uh, working with the offensive line, although what is going on with this Bernard Raymond guy at left tackle, he, he's, he's a disaster. He's a disaster. And, you know, Chris Ballard hasn't had a lot of bad picks uh, in his drafts, but, man, this guy looks like a bad football player. Anyway, you know, if you're going to be a head coach, you've got to be sure that you have all these little uh, things tied up very neatly. This is one thing he doesn't have tied up neatly. That has to be job one going into their Sunday night game in, da in Dallas. He has to ask, and Miles, this, this is something that I know from from having spoken to coaches, uh, especially in recent years. Almost every coach, and probably every coach, I would say even Bill Belichick has a guy upstairs who, to say in his ear, coach, call a timeout. Coach, use one of your timeouts now. Or, or at least remind him, might want to use one of your timeouts now. You know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Jeff Saturday needs somebody he trusts to say in his ear, Hey, Jeff, time out. Call one of them now. Or, hey, Jeff, throw the red challenge flag. Throw it. You know, we, right. we, we're going to win this one. You know, he needs somebody he trusts upstairs, and he doesn't have that right now. That would kind of bother me if I, were, uh, if I were Jim Ursay. He's got to have somebody who he trusts who can do that. Yeah, and, and it's one of those situations where, I mean, earlier in the year we were talking about it with Nathaniel Hackett, right? How do you get better at game management? Well, he hires a game management coach, and then they put him in the booth. And I, I don't know exactly how you do it as an interim guy. I think that's another layer of difficulty to this. But, yeah, when you have all the inexperience that you have, especially on the offensive side right now, where you have Parks Frazier, who was promoted from really assistant QB's coach, right, to being the yeah. offensive play caller, that's a lot to deal with. And, you know, you don't have the guy, Marcus Brady, who was the game plan offensive coordinator before. You have somebody in Jeff Saturday who was – being an analyst on television before. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't know the game. Obviously he does. He was a great center for that franchise for a very long time, but those are the kinds of things where you have a gap that you don't necessarily have on defense because you have Gus Bradley leading that unit. Right. And that's part of why the Colts have stayed so competitive because they have that building block or that really foundation, I guess I should say, on the defensive right. side where you have Gus Bradley leading the unit. You got somebody else in John Fox, who's a senior defensive assistant. That's another former head coach. So all of those things, you still have that continuity with. You don't have that on the offensive side. And so if this thing is going to improve with Jeff Saturday, especially offensively, you might need somebody else up there that can really be in Jeff Saturday's year to help him out. Yeah. All right, topic two, game of week okay. 13. Tua and the Dolphins at Fred Warner and the Niners. <laughs> I bring that up because we've got an absolutely explosive offense coming into play, an absolutely stingy defense. I love this game. This is like my favorite, might be my favorite game so far this year, you know, and 
And, and, you know, for those who don't know everything about the Niners right now, five games ago in the second half against Kansas City at home, they gave up 30 points in the second half. And they were wounded, not mortally, because in the four games since then, the San Francisco 49ers have allowed zero second half points. And they pitched a shutout against a team that is badly reeling, but is not offensively totally moribund. And that's the New Orleans Saints. There have been four shutouts in 176 games through 12 weeks. Four. And that was the fourth one. So, Miles, I present that to you, and I want you to tell me, who has the edge going into Dolphins Niners in Santa Clara Sunday afternoon? Oh, it's tough because, I mean, it's not just... It's a tough one. It really is because, you know, Mike McDaniel and Kyle Shanahan worked together for a long time. D'Amico Ryan's and Mike McDaniel worked together for a long time. So there's a part of me that wants to say, well, that gives the 49ers an advantage because they know exactly what kind of scheme Mike McDaniel runs. But by that same token, Mike McDaniel knows the exact same things about the San Francisco defense. And he knows exactly how good those dudes are, especially up front when you're talking about a Nick Bosa. So he knows how to necessarily manipulate things and change, you know, the defender's eye levels and where they're looking. And, you know, there's only so much you can do to counter the speed of guys like Tyreek Hill and like Jalen Waddell. So, you know, now you're dealing with a knee injury to Elijah Mitchell. Uh, Christian McCaffrey is day-to-day, at least as we record this on Tuesday morning. And Teron Armstead may or may not be hurt. So that's another factor in it. I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I think, and that's not a really good answer to your question, especially when we're talking about a sports podcast, right? But I, I think the, the speed of Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell might be the biggest difference. I, that's at least my instinct. But I don't really, yeah. I don't feel confident in that instinct. Well, you know, Miles, I, as I look at this game, and I've thought about it a lot in the last 24 hours, as I look at this game, I really think this is going to be a Tua coming out party. And okay. not that he's going to put up 30 points, because I definitely don't think he will. But mm-hmm. I've always thought that to really be a great player in the NFL – uh, and Tua definitely this year is showing signs of greatness. He has mm-hmm. been great, period. Yes. Yeah. But to be a great player in the NFL and to be thought of in the Pantheon, honestly, you've got to play really well against the great teams. And Patrick Mahomes put in the 40s, I think 42 up, against this 49er defense. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if I'm Mike McDaniel this week leading into this game, I am just thinking, hey, look, this is the greatest test we could have. We're trying to stay right up there with the Buffalo Bills atop the AFC East, and mm-hmm. this is going to be a great test uh, to be able to do to do it on the road and to do it against a great, great defense. I guess the the one thing that I'm very, very curious about is how the 49ers secondary will hold up against Waddle and Hill 
Um, I know that in the middle of the field, I think they'll be fine against Kasiki and and yeah. you know the intermediate stuff. But yeah. you know that Waddle and Hill is a test for that San Francisco secondary. Yeah, it's a test for anybody, but I, I think you're right with Fanga in the middle of that, you know, they're they're gonna be okay. I mean, he's one of the best young safeties in the league. Um, but yeah, you're right. He I is. mean, anytime you can stress a secondary with that kind of speed, it's it, it has the potential to hurt you. So uh, and I think just the the knowledge of the scheme by both head coaches is just going to be really, really interesting part of this chess match. I mean, you don't usually see two men who have worked alongside each other for as long as Mike McDaniel and Kyle Shanahan did in their respective careers, then face off against each other all that often. And, you know, these are two unfamiliar opponents in the Dolphins and the Niners. They, they only play once every four years, right? Unless, you know, the way the new schedule works, it could be a couple of years from now too. So it's just going to be one of those weird chess matches that I think could result in one of those lower scoring games, right? I mean, aside from the fact that the 49ers defense is really good, but all you need is a couple explosives. You know, all you need is Tyreek Hill to get loose one time, right? Jalen Waddle to get loose one time, yes. and it can end up being seven yes, points for you. Yes, you do. And that's that's yeah. the difference in that game-changing speed. Okay, topic number three. Brandon Staley steals from Doug Peterson. So you're probably wondering, what is this all about? Well, uh, on... Sunday afternoon, evening, after the Chargers um, executed a perfect two-point conversion pass uh, by Justin Herbert, um, you know, I wondered, because I had talked to Doug Peterson earlier in the day about him going for the win uh, instead of playing for overtime against the Baltimore Ravens. I wondered uh, about the decision-making of Brandon Staley, who was born to go for two. But in this particular case, when I called Staley after the game, he said something that I found really, really interesting. Okay, so he said that basically, you know, the irony of this situation, you know, Doug three hours earlier going for two, this is Staley, talking to me he said the irony is he goes you know we used a play that we call the philly follow and that was the play the name of the the play that they scored on the two-point conversion you know justin herbert to gerald everett for the two points and he said to me that he said i think it's a perfect tight red zone, very short yardage passing play that we have adopted and that we really love. And the reason that it's so good is because if you have Keenan Allen and you have Austin Eckler <clears throat> as your main threats on offense, you know that when they are either split out or when they leave the backfield, you better devote extra attention to them. Right. Honestly, who's going to devote extra attention to Gerald Everett? Okay. <laughs> and so honestly, they called this play and there's Gerald Everett. He's standing almost alone in the middle of the end zone. And it's the easiest two points that the chargers have ever made. And they win the game. 
But Staley thought it was so cool, and he sort of paid homage to Doug Peterson uh, for inventing a play that they used to win a game that they absolutely had to have. Yeah, they did absolutely need to have that. And it's good to see Gerald Everett kind of come through in that situation because he's the kind of guy, I mean, he's had some pretty significant plays that have not necessarily gone his way this year. So I think to have that one is a pretty encouraging thing for him you know, as somebody who's been in the league for a while, but still is kind of a young tight end there. And, and he's somebody that they really need yeah. to have contribute um, if they're really going to get to where they want to go. And you're right though, Peter, they, they absolutely needed that game and to come to have it come against a Cardinals team that has been reeling, you know, and it's weird to see what's going on down there in the desert from going 10 and two uh, kind of at this point last year to then being completely uncompetitive down the stretch. And then you lose in a very uncompetitive way in the wild card round to the Los Angeles Rams. And now this year, you know, you're four and eight things don't look very good. Uh, it, you have to be able to beat that kind of team. If you are Brandon Staley's chargers in order to really have any sort of positive energy heading down this stretch run where you're getting into December. So that was a big, big, big win. And I also liked that it showed Justin Herbert bringing his team back when they needed it most. You know, they had that drive at the end of, toward the end of the game against the Kansas City Chiefs last week, but then Patrick Mahomes does Patrick Mahomes things, right? And then Justin Herbert gets the ball with 30 seconds left, can't get it done. You know, the previous week against San Francisco, they had the ball late, couldn't get it done. Have the ball late at this point. You go down the field, you score a touchdown that might tie it, but you end up winning it. That's something big, I think, for Justin Herbert, too. Final topic for the top end of the pod. Deshaun Watson, he's back. And he will play his first game in 700 days yeah. on Sunday when the Cleveland Browns visit the Houston Texans. And man, I just know this. There probably aren't a lot of Texans fans who are really fired up about their team right now, but I bet they'll be fired up to boo Deshaun Watson on Sunday at NRG Stadium. Two things, Miles. How do you think Deshaun Watson is going to play after two years not playing in a football game? And how will America react to Deshaun Watson being back on the field? Well, I don't think Deshaun Watson's going to play very well, at least not in the first half. If the if the end of, if the game uh, in the preseason that he played against the Jaguars is any indication, he's going to be feeling a lot of different feelings based on all of the things that have gone on. I mean, you talk about all the lawsuits, everything that has happened now with his suspension. There's a reason why he's not playing for the Texans any longer. A, he didn't want to, but B, they wanted to get rid of him, right? So there's a lot that's going to go into it. And the fact that he hasn't played in 700 days is another one of those things. I mean, at his peak, was Deshaun Watson an elite passer? Absolutely. That's why the Browns wanted to go out and get him. They, th they think of this probably is a 10-year transaction rather than just a one-year thing. And if you have your quarterback position settled, it does a lot of different things for your franchise. But to go back to Houston after this long layoff, 
I don't think that that's going to really end up as a positive, at least not in the first half. Maybe once he gets settled in in the second half, things will be a little bit different. But I find it hard to believe that Deshaun Watson is going to have some great week of practice and then go into NRG Stadium and light it up. I I, I find that hard to believe. But to get to your, the second part of your question, I mean, this is still somebody who was accused and sued by more than two dozen women for sexual misconduct and assault. And I don't think that America has forgotten that. And, you know, whether it's in Houston or whether it's going to different places around the country, because the Browns have a lot of road games here down the stretch. I think that the Browns and Deshaun Watson are going to feel the opposition from the crowds that they're going to be playing in. I think not only that, but I think it's it's easy now because he's had his 11-game suspension. It's easy now to say, okay, huh, all right, we got all the crap over with, and now it's just going to be about football. But I don't think that's the case. First of all, the civil suits are not over against Deshaun Watson. And, and second of all, I think you're going to see protests at some stadiums down the stretch of this season. Now... Cleveland, uh, their road games, they've got four road games down the stretch of their season. And they're going to Houston, obviously. They're going to Cincinnati. I'm not sure I would expect much out of Cincinnati. It's kind of a docile town. Um, But week 17 at Washington, I would definitely expect there to be some protests outside that game. And then they end at Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh will want to protest just because it's Cleveland. You know, but 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 the way I sort of look at this right now is that it isn't only going to be a smooth transition into only football. And I think Deshaun Watson deserves to hear from women and deserves to hear from fans who think that what he did was reprehensible, who does who think that uh, the Cleveland Browns owners deserve to hear the incredible reward, the guaranteed $230 million that the Haslams handed to Deshaun Watson. We all know why they did it. They never would have gotten Deshaun Watson had they not fully guaranteed this contract. We know that. But still, it's $230 million guaranteed. And I just think crowds, fans, uh, and the public are going to let the Browns hear this a lot between now and the end of the season. And quite honestly, Miles, I don't think it'll be over next season either. So Uh, we'll see what happens, but we'll all have our eye on that game um, on Sunday in Houston. Let's go to our guest now, Joe Horrigan, a longtime vice president of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. My one thing when people say, ah, Joe Horrigan, why is he on? Or, you know, what... You always talk about Joe Horrigan. You always praise Joe Horrigan. What is it? This is what I say to people. Joe Horrigan retired, I think, four years ago uh, from the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Just thought it was time. I think he was about 67 years old. Uh, Retired. And incredibly, my phone rang. And it was John Madden. And John Madden called me and said, what the hell is going on with the Hall of Fame and Horrigan? He can't resign. He's the only guy there who knows everything about the game. He can't resign. 
And I said, John, I don't know. Let me find out. So I called Joe, found out, you know, uh, it was nothing nefarious. But, but uh, so anyway, I called back Madden and then Madden called Joe and he said, you can't retire. You can't retire. No. And so anyway, he just thinks that historically in football that the sun rises and sets with Joe Horrigan. So here comes uh, my conversation with Joe Horrigan about a new venture he has, and we'll discuss quite a few things, including how strange it is that over a 60 uh, enshrinee period, okay, over a five-year period, that only one quarterback has gotten in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and how that is probably going to change very soon. Here's Joe Hart. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Happy to be joined by Joe Horrigan, my longtime friend and... And uh, the man who makes the Pro Football Hall of Fame tick, if you love the Pro Football Hall of Fame, um, you should know I've been a, a voter in the process now, I guess, for 30 years. And the one person who really has been at the center of the organization of the Hall of Fame and also the the key guy to the entire voting process, in my opinion, over the years has been Joe Horrigan. And Joe, um, we'll talk a little bit about the voting and the process and and maybe what this year looks like to you. It's an interesting year, I think, for the Hall uh, in terms of, you know, the vote and who gets in, who doesn't, all that stuff. But you're involved in something, and I wanted to have you on to discuss it, that, that I've I think is really interesting and kind of overdue. And it's the Hall of Fame running a, you know, a, a both a podcast and what you guys are calling a vodcast, right. which I think means video podcast, which is kind of what this is too. But I, I think it's really cool. It's called Football Heaven. And I'm going to ask you to explain it in a second, but I like your panel, your panel which is Aditi Kinkabwala, uh, the longtime uh, NFL reporter, CBS correspondent, uh, the, the historian, Joe Horrigan, and, and another person who really is totally unknown to fans, but who's really a smart guy. His name is John Kendall. He's the Hall archivist. 
I'll always consider you the hall archivist. But John Kendall and you basically know where every artifact and body is buried in the Hall of Fame. And so it's really kind of a fun thing. I want you to explain what exactly you're going to be doing and uh, and, and why you got into this. Yeah, it's interesting, Peter. And thank you, first of all, for letting me uh, be on your podcast. The the interesting thing, if you will, is that, as you say, this is kind of something overdue. It's another platform for us to become storytellers. You know, we use that artifactual knowledge to tell stories in the museum. Why can't we share that on a broader based platform, such as the uh, podcast now we call vodcast because it is video and audio. But what we're doing is we're, we're taking the museum collection and bringing it to life by not only talking about the artifacts, but the personal uh, connection to the Hall of Famer who may have donated it to us. So in other words, you know, if we're looking at this chunk of AstroTurf that means nothing in the sense of looks like an old rug and Franco Harris comes on and talks to you and says, that's the turf. I cut it out of the field where the Immaculate Reception occurred before it got shredded when they were putting in a new turf. Well, that's an altogether different story. But we also then talked to Franco about the Immaculate Reception. So it's that link between the artifact, the art or the uh, enshrinee and the stories they have to tell. Some of them are just, you know, we just laugh. I mean, when we uh, uh, we launched our recent episode here on the um, undefeated season, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, just a lot of good chuckles involved in, in the whole story. In the same way with the Immaculate Reception, uh, we had Fred Bolitnikoff on to kind of counter, a counter punch, if you will. And, and he was hysterical. He was a great, um, you know, you, you took it with great spirit. So it's a, it's like I say, it's just a new way, a new platform, and it's the Hall of Fame working with Hall of Fame Village, which is we're separate entities, but we're partners in this this particular project. Joe, one of the things you so I I should say, I believe you've got your first six episodes mm -hmm. uh, finished, and they are essentially beginning to roll out now. Your first one came out on November 15th. And when I saw the list of these episodes, I said, now this is going to be the weirdest one that you do because you interviewed Edgerin James about the hair he donated to the, uh, to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I've got to find out, Joe, why do we need Edgerin James hair? You know, when you use the word weird, you know, we, we, we looked, we struggled kind of as we're talking about it, whether it's unusual, weird, <laughs> meaningful, substantive, we, you know, it was, this, it was, you couldn't define it. Uh, <laughs> we, we literally, we talked about it. And John Kendall was, you know, kind of introducing, this is maybe the most unusual thing we have in our collection. But then he told the story about uh, as Edgerin, Edgerin, when he donated it to us, explained that that was when he had his, he, he cut his hair as a, someone thinking about, he never wanted to have a, his team hurt by the fact that he had this long hair that players by rule could grab him by. Oh and yeah. Said, that, you know, to me, and it was a game against Cleveland and which it occurred, he said, what if I had, you know, what if I we had lost that game because I got caught by my hair? So he says, I made a business and a football decision to cut my hair. And then Aditi had the great line, well, we understand why you cut it, but why on earth did you save it? 
<laughs> so what was his answer? Well, his answer was, well, it was a part of me. It was a part of the story. And I, and she goes, and you put it in a, in a plastic baggie. And he goes, yeah, it was the same baggie I gave to the Hall of Fame. I mean, it was years. I mean, I don't know how many years, Peter, it was that from his from that game when he cut the hair to when he was elected to the Hall of Fame. You know, he's got that mandatory five-year waiting period and he waited a couple more. So it was in his bag and he said, but this is something. And she says, where did you keep it? And he says, I have my places. Yeah. <laughs> he came up with one place. He obviously just held on to this thing that, but he, I think what it meant to him was that, you know, he made a sacrifice, you know, he didn't really want to cut his hair, but he did it for the good of the team. And I think wow. that's kind of the story when it comes down to after all the chuckles and, and <laughs> I can't believe we have hair as an artifact, you know, it comes down to, it was really, and you have to listen to Edrew tell the story, it's really about how he felt about it. And that, that's kind of cool. But that's the kind of stories we get out of these guys when, when we have quote, unusual artifacts. I'm I'm curious. So we are coming up on the 50 year anniversary mm -hmm. of and and the NFL did a fantastic job, I think, in scheduling the Steelers and the Raiders for Christmas Eve in Pittsburgh. You, you know, so close to the actual date of the game, mm -hmm. obviously. Sure. And I wonder. You have an episode coming up. Uh, it'll it'll uh, be released on December 20th. You release these every Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct, yep. And this episode will come out on December 20th, in which you have three Steelers, you know, two of whom played in that game. Obviously, Franco Harris, Joe Green. You also have Jerome Bettis. And then you have Fred Bolitnikoff, from the Raiders. So pick out something from that show that I don't know and that fans won't know, but you find fascinating. Well, you know, the, the thing that I find fascinating, and again, I'll use the artifact. One of the, one of the, we used a couple artifacts for this episode, but one of the artifacts is a, a metal panel that was an elevator panel, you know, where you push your buttons, one, two, three, four. Yeah. And that elevator panel was donated to the Hall of Fame by Dan Rooney. Now, the reason it was donated to the Hall of Fame by Dan Rooney, again, when they were doing some renovations at uh, Three Rivers, uh, they were taking out the elevator. And he said, this is the elevator where my father was when the Immaculate Reception occurred. The founder of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who suffered through the indignities of being same old Steelers for so many decades missed the most important and famous play in his team's history because with 23 seconds left in the game, he thought it was over because the Steelers, you know, were, you know, looking at, 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 at a defeat. I mean, they're looking at the jaws of defeat. He got in the elevator that would take him down to the locker room where the where his team would be with the intention of going down to congratulate them on making the playoffs, something they hadn't done but once. And he wanted to tell them what, a, what you know, he, how much he appreciated the, the you know, heart and soul they put into the game. Yeah. They lost. Well, he's in the elevators hearing all this commotion. He's thinking, well, that's really great. The fans are saluting these players who, you know, gave it their all. And then he got out of the elevator and his team is in the locker room and they're screaming and yelling. And it was Joe Green who came up to him and says, Chief, we won. And he, that was wow. the, the way he found out. But that elevator panel to Dan Rooney symbolized 
you know, not only the futility of the of the of the decades of losing, but the fact that his father, who founded the team, missed that play because he was going down to console his team. There's one thing that I've always found very, very interesting about that game, and I want you to tell me the story of it. And that is John Madden in his home in California possesses a telephone. Yep. And the telephone is the phone that the referee, Fred Swearingen, used to call upstairs essentially to ask, I believe, Art McNally, who was at the game, Art McNally just recently inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, to ask Art McNally, hey, is there anything you can do to help us here? We don't have any idea if it's a completion, incompletion, what happened. And McNally essentially, I think, said, you got to make the call on the field. It's your call, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so... Will you tell me about the moment, the phone call upstairs, and why this phone resided in John Madden's house in Pleasanton, California? Well, as you as you chronicled there, you're absolutely correct. That's that's how it happened. I mean, Fritz Swearingen went into the dugout of the Pittsburgh Pirates, was you know shared stadium baseball football, and it was the dugout phone that that literally they had wired to the uh, press box, you know, in case you needed, you know, whatever, you know, alert the media about something, whatever it was. But Art McNally was there at the game as the supervisor of officials at a playoff game, just as an observer. And then when the phone rang, it was actually Dan Rooney who gave it to, to uh, Art McNally. And Dan swore, he says, I heard him say, he says, you got to make, you got to call what you saw. And that was it. He's insist, he was insistent that that's what, uh, Art McNally was telling him, well, obviously Swearingen didn't know what he saw and went back into that huddle. That was Art, or that was um, uh, John Madden's complaint. He never said, you know, that Franco didn't catch the ball. You know, that wasn't the debate. His debate was those officials didn't see it. Swearingen left, made a phone call, came back, and suddenly they saw it. You know, so it was kind of like, okay, you know, was that? Was there a debate in there two and two saying that they saw it and two saw they didn't see it and they just had to say what is it call it or did none of them see it that was that was Madden's argument all the time but in any case the phone ends up in John's possession because not in that game but when they returned at one and I don't even know what game it was but it was a return to Pittsburgh one of his assistant coaches literally ripped it out of the wall and took it to John and said I've got something for you. This is the phone that they called, you know, when you when you uh, had when the immaculate reception occurred, and uh, John and, I, and I'll say this, you know, but John, our dear friend, he always said, "I'm going to donate it to the Hall of Fame someday." But unfortunately, you know, he passed away before that happened. So I'm hoping that his family does someday. But it would make for a great addition to the three odd things we have from that game. Franco Harris cut out the turf where the re immaculate reception occurred, and we have that. And as I said, Dan Rooney took out the elevator panel and the overhead panel. We have that. The Madden family has the phone. Now that would that would make the triumvirate. The yeah. kind of three things, the three important elements of that one singular event: the Madden objection, the Franco Harris reception, and the Art Rooney missing his play. Joe, you know what I what I think is so interesting about that play, and I've this will stick to me forever about John Madden. 
that he never got over that call. No, no. Not even, it, well, first of all, I I texted him, this might've been five years ago, might've been longer, said, I really want to write about that phone. And I really want to discuss that story. We're coming on the anniversary of this thing or whatever it is. And I got this terse text message back. We will not be discussing that phone or that play. And I was, I, you know, John was uh, obviously, John is exactly who he was. Yeah. It, it, you know, so there was no, he was just a fun, you know, avuncular, uh, cool, old, uh, you, you know, your, your fun uncle who he had great conversations with. I just love being around him. Why do you suppose that he could never get over that game? Well, you know, I think a couple of things that, that really, you know, obviously it was a playoff game, you know, and they, you know, felt like, you know, this was our destiny as every team that gets in the playoffs does. But he was so focused on, you know, as a coach, he knew the rules and that was what he was arguing. He wasn't arguing whether, like I said, it was whether it was a reception and run for a touchdown. He was saying that it was a double touch ball, you know, violation. Right. And that that is what he said he, you know, felt it was and felt that the officials should have been on top of that somewhere in there to, you know, you know, really clearly state without any kind of controversy and assistance from the press box, which he never quite really believed that he got none. <laughs> but I, it was just one of those such a proud person and and you know as, as we all know he you know he didn't coach much longer after that i mean i think it was right. really this this i'm building my career and this is my you know this is my swan song almost and it's being taken away from me without really being clear and that that bugged him yeah yeah it's very interesting uh joe let's transition into the hall and a couple of hall issues um, so I, th I find it interesting over the years that there are sometimes, as I said at the top, we, that I have been a voter now for 30 years and I, I had a real issue at times with the work of the committee, the selection committee, because we went a very long time. I think the stat is that over virtually a 20-year period, we put one pure safety, Ken Houston, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I'm sure that's that's not exactly correct, but it's nearly correct. And then it's almost like we've overcompensated, you know, from, from Kenny Easley to Leroy Butler, we put 47 safeties in there, you know. So what, when you sometimes look at the ebb and flow of the process. What do you see? What do you like about it? And what don't you like about it? Yeah. Well, when I look at the ebb and flow, I, you know, I, I, I can say that, you know, now in my 44th year here at the Hall of Fame, I've seen a lot of ebbs, a lot of, a lot of flows. But it, one of the things that I think sometimes happens is that uh, there's a, there's, there's a um, evolution of the, game and an evolution of the selectors. And I think that's really important to remember. You know, we have maybe the most effective group of men and women now 
as we've ever had looking at the, the candidates. But in the earlier years, you had one geographical representative for each of the NFL franchises. So let's just say you have John Stedman from Baltimore, who can, you know, espouse the merits of Johnny Unitas off the top of his head like nobody else can. But how many games did he see, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals play? You know, it, we, we lacked that universal selector, if you will. So yeah. sometimes we got hyper-focused not only on just winning teams, but on selectors who, who made great presentations. Right. And that leave some of the players who were difficult to define. Offensive linemen was the first group that I noticed it in. And literally, the Hall of Fame brought it to the selectors' attention and saying, look, guys, there's an awful lot of Hall of Fame caliber offensive linemen that aren't getting their day in court. Please discuss them. And that little nudge, I think, began a little bit of a, as you say, we got uh, maybe an overreaction to safeties. I don't know whether it's overreaction or overdue. It was the same way with those offensive linemen. You know, it wasn't an overreaction, but there was definitely overdue conversations. And then from the evolution of the game, you know, you start talking about uh, there was a period where we were looking at tight ends and saying, you know, well, well tight ends, who who's out there? And, and there was this great debate, Mike Dick, uh, John Mackey or Charlie Sanders, you know, and they, they could only point to three or four and they weren't going to elect them all in the same year for sure. Yeah. So there was yeah. this period of where we saw a gradual, you know, selection between these tight ends. And then more recently, we we got log jams, as you have this year, as a matter of fact, with wide receivers. Uh, and I think, and I'm, you know, I'm only speculating on how that happens when the game started becoming a, you know, a, a really a pass happy league, more and more wide receivers became the focus, as opposed to just quarterbacks and running backs. They're saying, my goodness, you got Chris Carter, Andre Reed, and Tim Brown all eligible at the same time. And again, you know this, you know the process. There's only going to be five modern era guys come out. They're not going to take three wide receivers any one given year. So the debate became which of these guys goes first. And that divided the vote so often that the three of them kept repeating and more wide receivers were added in the mix yeah. to make it even more complicated. And I think that's what happens when there's limits on how many can come in and the great talent that comes into the fold each year before we've had the opportunity to, I don't want to call it removed from the candidate list by electing them, but but yes, by by that movement. Don't you think, you know, over the years, I remember when I first became a voter, I believe it was 92. Um, and the one thing that I recall is that I'm not saying that there were knockdown drag out fights. I think that's a little bit overrated, but I do recall that there seemed to be a lot more disagreements and a lot more contentiousness yeah. in those days, especially because of uh, the the departed, the late Paul Zimmerman. <laughs> Uh, he just wouldn't care. He would say, I'm not voting for X. He's not a Hall of Famer. Uh, and I don't understand why you guys are not voting for Y, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I remember one time leaving there after a pretty fierce discussion in Paul Tagliabue's first year where, you know, Paul was not a big fan of Tagliabue. Paul Zimmerman was not a big fan of Tagliabue, to put it mildly. Um, and so I left the meeting that day and I said, let me ask you a question. What is wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, 
what why does everything with you have to be world war three why 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 can you not just say hey i respect your opinion if you think this guy is a hall of famer but i think he's this that or the other thing and bleepity bleep whatever but joe in my opinion today we're a little bit too nice in these meetings and we don't necessarily sort of go at each other and have respectful disagreements. And my feeling is a little bit, it's a little bit because of the media, because, because if there have been instances, as you know, which is against the rules of engagement for being on this committee, that things that are said in that room, maybe not explicitly or exactly, they just sort of leak out. And so I miss those days of really kind of going at each other. Do you think yeah. those days will ever come back? Yeah, you know what, here's here's what uh, part of what I think happens. And, and I said this not because I'm talking to you. When I said this, I meant it that we probably have the best selection committee that we've had. And the reason is the, the diversity, but the also the overall league-based knowledge. And here's here's that's one one aspect of it. But the other thing that happens is you remember when we when you first came on the committee, we would have a preliminary list of 130 names, and we would ask the committee to reduce that to 15. Well, yeah. the vote was so divided, you know, from 130 to 15 or 135 to whatever it was, that some of the candidates that were making it down to the final 15 were borderline, if 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 not outright not Hall of Fame caliber. Yeah. And I think it was more clear cut there where the arguments had to be made, you know, what in the heck are you talking about? It, and when we added that second step of taking from that preliminary list down to 25 semifinalists, now you've got more of the meat of the matter there. So the 25 are then reduced to 15. And suddenly, like this year, there only was a tie actually this year, in the uh, redu reduction of 25, the names on there, they're hard to argue that they don't belong in the hall of fame it, it's not a question of if but when so the the debates are more along those lines that hey i agree with you this guy belongs in the hall of fame but i disagree with you in this fact that he belongs before this guy and and that is more the um situation you face it's less contentious because i think when you have those final 15 modern era and the, whatever number of seniors we're at here you know, over the various years um it becomes a little less um, throwing out of the bottom five or something. And I mentioned the seniors, having the senior category broken out there was also a good way, you know, for Paul Zimmerman, who would, you know, when we had seniors right in with the modern era, he was already mad because the senior didn't make it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So he came in the room mad. Uh, but he made, he his arguments, uh, Paul was, you know, for both of us, he was a dear friend. You know, I, I, respected Paul's opinion because it was a learned opinion. Yeah. Sometimes he was, you know, gruff when he presented it, but off the record in a quiet room, when he would make his case, he made more changes to our selection process than any other selector. And it, they were good changes. Not that he, you know, said change this or whatever, but he made us realize there are better ways of doing things. And right. I think the hall, you know, really did get locked in on, we've got a system, we're going to stick with it. We're not going to change it. Well, we did. We've made changes, a lot of changes, as you know, over the years now. And a lot of them were, you know, from people like Paul and yourself who said, 
did you ever consider this? Yeah. And now we, you know, I think we have a good system. We continue every year to review it and say, is it working or is it not working? We can change things. We had a mentality of not changing things for a lot of years. Yeah. I love the fact that you have changed things, especially to try to respect and include what uh, my colleague Rick Gosselin has pointed out over and over again, that being in that senior pool, if you don't get in it, if you don't get in as a modern era candidate, you go into this senior pool where I believe Rick has the numbers, but there's more than 80 uh, people who are on all decade teams, yeah. not necessarily who aren't in the Hall of Fame, but have never had their yeah. case discussed, right. you know, in front of the Hall of Fame. So I think I think it's fantastic when there are new guys brought into that to that senior process. Yeah. Joe, I want to ask you one other thing that really kind of fascinates me about pro football and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. This year, uh, most likely there will be eight uh, candidates inducted, however many it'll be. It'll be more than five. Mm -hmm. And I look at this list, and again, this will be, uh, I believe, the sixth consecutive year. And you might correct me, but in those six years, there's only been one quarterback, Peyton Manning, selected, um, you know, for enshrinement in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So if there are eight this year, that means there are a total of 60 people, including the Centennial class members, since 2018, who have been enshrined, who have been elected, and only one has been a quarterback. Yeah. So it's almost like that is a little bit counterintuitive. <laughs> Don't you think that the quarterbacks being so famous and getting so much attention, it just seems a little bit odd that there's only been one quarterback in a six-year period. However, we're getting to the point where you might – uh, we might have six in a three or four year period get in. Tell me what you think about sort of the recent quarterback drought and what lays ahead. Well, the recent, they, they don't retire. You look at Tom Brady, he keeps playing. You know, the great players that we see at, at the quarterback position this day, this day in this day have raised the bar extremely high by their own doing. But we also, you know, as you know, we have to remember um, Ken Stabler was elected to the Hall of Fame. He didn't play in the era that that um, uh, that Peyton Manning and, and yeah. John Elway did. So it's, you have to make sure that you're doing apples to apples. So I think some of that, you know, will happen when these guys do finally start saying, I'm retired. And there's that five-year waiting period again. So it'll still look like there's this big gap. But if you look at who, who's playing in the game today, Rest assured, you're going to be filling the quarterback category pretty quickly on an almost annual basis. Just making the assumption that they don't all, you know, you know, decide to retire in the same year or the same two yeah. years and you know bottle it all up again so that we have this logjam. 
But no, I again, there's one quarterback, one starting quarterback per team where you have usually two running backs, three offensive linemen. You know, you have more players from other positions than the quarterback. Maybe the quarterback and the center are the two most consistent uh, players if that uh, yeah. is look at again I don't, I don't even know the number how many centers have made the hall of fame in the last six years they're they're an integral part of the success of those quarterbacks yeah joe i want to end with a feeling that i have that i don't know that we've ever discussed this but i really want to hear your thoughts as somebody who um cares so deeply about this and I find it difficult, and this really kind of goes back to, uh, you know, my years kind of kind of covering the game, and and I should say that one of the advantages I have as a national writer, and yeah, I covered the Giants for four years in the '80s, but I've never, I don't really consider myself, oh, got to get the Giants in. I just, it's just not. I don't. I don't think any of us should be that way. I think we should be considered uh, myopically with only one thing, and that's getting the best guys in. And if you uh, cover the Giants for a long time, uh, but think, uh, for instance, that Randy Gratishar is better than Harry Carson, well, you want to vote for Randy Gratishar. You shouldn't just vote for Harry Carson because he played for the team that you covered. That's not that's not right. But But I want to talk a little bit about statistics and how in my mind they can really be deleterious to the entire process we live in an era where look uh justin jefferson i I wrote this in my column uh this week justin jefferson by the age of 24 will have better stats for his career if he never plays another game, then Lynn Swan. And so uh, it's it's a little weird to to even think about that, that a guy at age 24 could have better numbers than Lynn Swan. But obviously, Lynn Swan played in an era where teams ran the ball 60% of the time. And and I don't, I, I really don't mean just to concentrate on that, but I have a problem with saying that if like if and look I'm not saying that Reggie Wayne or Tory Holt does not deserve it I don't mean that at all their you know their contributions were gaudy ones but I think what I am saying is that you're going to have guys who you never heard of like Oz Hakim who played with the greatest show on turf and Oz Hakim is going to have better numbers than some pro football hall of famers. And so we have to, we have to put these numbers in perspective. We can't just say, Paul, he caught a thousand, a thousand balls. So he deserves to be in the hall of fame. We can't do that because we're going to have people every year that go to that number and they may not necessarily belong in the Hall of Fame. It takes something else. Like, I'm a Heinz Ward guy. And mm-hmm. I'm a Heinz Ward guy because he might be the best blocking wide receiver of all time. He's certainly one of them. But he did something else rather than just catch a lot of balls in an era when quarterbacks were throwing a lot of balls. 
I want to hear your thoughts of you sit on the sidelines. You don't you don't have a vote, but I know you have very strong opinions about things like this. And I want to hear your thoughts about that and, and about a lot of the gaudy offensive numbers we see today. Well, I want to go back to your first kind of question, and that was about you know selectors and making presentations and you know you you're there to select the best candidates not necessarily the guy that you covered as a uh, somebody right. that covered the new york giants i go to that because it you know we you, you hear us say that all the time in the meeting but the thing that has kind of gotten a little we need to, to remind our selectors a little bit that the opening remarks from a geographical selector is how we begin on each of those candidates as you know are meant to be just that opening remarks the debate begins after they present the statistical summary or the biographical summary. It's not solely based on that impassioned plea usually that comes from that geographical guy who feels this obligation to get his guy elected. It's not that, that you're in the room to get the best five modern era guys elected. That's, we have to keep that in our mind. And I, I can remember a couple of Hall of Fame presenters saying, over the course of the years, you know, my guy is really good, but this guy's better. You know, I've heard that. We need to hear it maybe sometimes a little bit more. Yeah. To the statistical thing, it's so important. And you bring up such a great point. The game evolves. The game changes. And I think of Floyd Little. When Floyd Little was playing, few rushed for a thousand yards. Few. They moved the hash marks in to help the passing game. Well, it helped the running game. All of a sudden, everybody rushed for a thousand yards, and people are saying, "Why couldn't Floyd Little do it?" Well, when he was doing it, the hash marks were out. So you got to look at things like that as to how statistics are impacted by things out of the player's control. In the same way with the bump and run. I mean, when you when you talk about receivers, when you had Mel Blunt clocking you at the line of scrimmage and all the way down the field, chances of you catching a ball are less than today. So the game changes. And so when you're looking at Hall of Fame candidates, it's important to do, I say again, apples to apple. Look at where they you know, performed in their era and the rules that applied to their, their position in the game. Don't think of Raymond Berry when you're looking at you know, Randy Moss. You know, Raymond Berry was an outstanding receiver, you know, far above anybody else in the, in the game when he was playing. But I'll use an old story from, from Don Hudson. You and I both share the same opinion that Don Hudson perhaps is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Hall of Famer of all time. And he borrowed this, this cute little saying from somebody else, I'm sure. But he was asked, you know, Don, if you were playing today, and this is back in the 80s, you know, if you were playing today, yeah. how many passes do you think you would catch? He thought for a second, oh, 50. And the guy was a little bit taken aback by this, says, 50? He says, yeah, he says, I am 72. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. That was his point, really, was the game changed. If you were playing and was young in the games, uh, in the era that you're at, talking about, yeah, maybe it would have been superlative, but we don't know. Yeah, I I think that's really wise. Um, and, and not that this is any sort of, uh, you know, I didn't just have you on because, you know, I wanted to discuss your show and 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 that, but I really wanted to get your views on on things like that because you're you are totally dispassionate about it. You're very passionate about the Hall of Fame, obviously, and about football history. Um, and, and I'll just make one last point about it. You know, sometimes in my 
job, I talk to players about the Hall of Fame. I talk to coaches about the Hall of Fame. There's one current coach who's extremely interested in making the Hall of Fame one day. And so we've had several off the record conversations. What do you think it's going to take and blah, blah, blah. So whatever. I said, I don't know. But I said, here's kind of what I think. But so last week, Joe, I had Travis Kelsey on the phone after the Kansas City game against the Chargers in L.A., where he caught the winning touchdown pass in the game. And uh, it was his third touchdown catch of the game. And and he now, including this week, he's got 912 receiving yards. He's on his way to his seventh consecutive 1,000-yard season, um, which here's how amazing it is. Rob Gronkowski and Tony Gonzalez, clearly the, you know, who are on the Mount Rushmore of modern tight ends without any question, they had four seasons over a thousand yards. You know, each one of them only had four seasons over a thousand yards. Um, Jason Witten had only two. And so, you know, Kelsey, it looks like, is going to have seven in a row. And I just remember saying, I said, hey, at the end of the conversation, I said, hey, I, I was thinking about this tonight. And when I was watching this game and I said to him, you know, I, you might know I'm a voter for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I was thinking watching this game tonight that, you know, if you never played another year after this year, I would vote for you first ballot, whatever ballot for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I said, that's how great I think you've been. And that's what a difference maker at tight end that I think you, you've you been. And there was this long pause and he goes, wow. He said, I, I don't know what to say. I said, I don't want you to say anything. I just, <laughs> I want you to say that here I am, you know, we know each other a little bit, but not well. And I just said, I'm one of the guys, for better or for worse, who is uh, you know, part of my job for however long it is going to be, is to sit in judgment of people like you. And my judgment of you is pretty damn good. So I just wanted to say, nice job. And he <laughs> said, hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. But it's interesting to hear the reverence that so many players hold the Hall of Fame in. And I think for a guy like, uh, you know, Travis Kelsey to, to think that maybe, maybe one day that he and his brother could have bus next to each other in Canton, yeah, Ohio. Nice. <laughs> they grew up right up the street in Cleveland. Joe, that would really be one of the cool Hall of Fame stories. I'll tell you that much. You know, you're defining one of the things, Peter, that that you've often heard us say in the meeting and that getting elected to the hall of fame is life-changing for these guys. Yeah. And even the guys who expect it, they are not presumptuous enough to have that emotional outburst that they have when they are told they've made the hall of fame. You've seen, you know, the famous knock now where, I mean, it is moving. They, you know, they, they really understand the significance of something. This is not something that they did in a season. This started in peewee football. This started through high school football, college football, and the pros, where every day they got up and was working towards that goal, whether they meant to or not, 
you know, yeah. it all went into their body of work that eventually earned them the right to say I'm among the best. That, I mean, I, I get choked up thinking about it. I mean, think about, uh, I'd love to have that honor in my profession in, in some way that, you know, that would be as, as monumental yeah. as election to the Hall of Fame must be to them for that whole lifetime of commitment. Yeah, it's really, it's uh, talking to guys after it happens. I had a beer at the Super Bowl last year with Tony Baselli. Um, you know, who obviously had been knocking on the door for a long time and then finally got in. And you talk about changing a guy's life. He just was so, um, it really did change his life. It, you, you think, and look, Tony Baselli is a, Tony Baselli, we, we've talked about this over the years. I've talked with him. He's have a great life, whether he's in the Hall of Fame, whether he's not in the Hall of Fame. That isn't the point. The point is very simple that when you are told you've made the Pro Football Hall of Fame, it just changes you materially. And um, I think it did with him. And anyway, Joe, listen, um, we we have many times, I, I do want to tell people that one of really my first introductions to, to Joe Horrigan in the hall happened uh, in 1990 when Sports Illustrated sent me to Canton for, I don't know, three or four days to pour through the archives. And I was going to write a, basically a pro football history book and name the top players of all time in order. And you know, one of the things I really appreciate about you is that um, you don't say, Hey, look, you should really make uh, Don Hudson, the greatest player of all time or Otto Graham, the greatest player or, or anybody you you don't say that but you say here's the information make your decision and you're always very big on judging uh in in certain eras and i remember walking away from my time in the hall when i was looking up everything and and reading about everybody i remember saying this is going to be a really strange thing if I named Don Hudson the greatest in 1990 or 91, the greatest player of all time. But when you look at it and you realize that he retired in the 20 in the 26th year of pro football. And when he retired, he had three times as many catches for three times as many yards and three times as many touchdowns, roughly as any receiver who ever played. And of course, Green Bay threw the ball more than a lot of teams did, but that's what he was able to do. And I remember that trip made me think that I will always judge players versus the other players in their era. I'm not going to say it's easy to sit there and say that Jerry Rice is better than Don Hudson, look at his numbers. Well, that's not the point. And it can't be the point. But I think you've always had a very good and very important, quite honestly, historical bend to how you view how players belong in certain eras. Well, thank you for all of that. And and, and I, I do believe that because it, you know, if we were judged according to uh, even in our everyday life, <laughs> you know, if you went back and said, you know, 
do what you do today in the 1930s, you'd go to jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have to be careful when we're when we're being judgmental that we are doing it in a, in a way that is fair, equitable, and based on fact. Yeah. Uh, and you know, history is a great teacher. We we need to use and rely at rely upon it a little bit more than we do sometimes. But I think that history doesn't lie. And I want to say something too about pro football history or sports history. The historians of the game are Peter Kings. See, you know, I, I read what you write and I read what your ancestors wrote you know, in the, in the world of, of covering the game. And the game was always covered by the sports writers. We didn't have a book published on pro football until 1934. And it was terrible called pro football. It's ups and downs. And the next one was 1954. So there was no, you know, documented historical evidence of, of the body of work of the game. So it was the sports writers who we have to look at and judge according to what they tell us they witnessed. And then there's obviously, you know, you can go to statistics and you can go to, you know, there are some league records that play into this. But I really always tell our selectors, you're the historians of the game. I, I wasn't I wasn't there in 1920, but somebody was and he wrote it down for the rest of us to learn from. Yeah, it's a great point. Joe Horrigan, Pro Football Hall of Fame historian. Uh co-host of the new Football Heaven vodcast podcast put out by the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, new episodes every Tuesday. The first six are in the bank. Um, I can't wait to hear the, because I'm going to write something, you know, in three weeks from now about um, you know, about the Immaculate Reception. I don't know what else there is left to write. I suppose I need to think about that, but I'll probably do what I always do. I'll pick up the phone and say, hey, Joe, what's an angle that hasn't been beat to death by now? <laughs> and then you'll tell me about five of them. I'll pick one and, and off we'll go. And then I am the one who will look like a genius after picking the pocket of Joe Horrigan's brain. Joe, thanks so much for uh, joining me on the podcast this week. It has been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a, like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, Sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Thank you. Back in the podcast, my thanks to Joe Horrigan uh, for joining me and for enlightening us on so many things. So let's get back to it, Miles. I'm going to start the back half of the pod by asking you about Jerry Jones and the very weird, totally out of left field, but totally fascinating story that surfaced uh, by Sally Jenkins and David Marinus of the Washington Post last week. Obviously, I think most people know about it. There is a photograph 
of 14-year-old sophomore Jerry Jones on the steps of North Little Rock High School in September on September 9th, 1957. Incredible. The first day of classes in high school for Jerry Jones. He's a sophomore. They went uh, grades 10, 11, and 12 at North Little Rock High School. And his first day of classes, you, you see Jerry Jones on the steps sort of craning his neck. And man, Jerry Jones at 14 looks very much like Jerry Jones at 80. You know, mm -hmm. if you see that photo. But Anyway, I've got a few thoughts on it, but Miles, I really want to hear your thoughts about what it means and what should that photograph mean of Jerry Jones being in a phalanx of dozens of people blocking the entrance of North Little Rock High School to six black students that day 65 years ago. Yeah, it, I mean, what a fascinating story that was um, by the Washington Post. And they've got this great series that they're doing on um, black coaches in the NFL and the opportunities or lack thereof that come of it. And, and you know, that photo, it, it strikes me is really interesting because it, it really symbolizes the fact that we've come very far in a short period of time. You're talking about school desegregation, right? And racial relations in America and all these different things. But all of these, all this progress that we've made is still in the lifetimes of people who are still very much a part of public life. And so that choice to be there at the age of 14 is one that, I don't know how much, you know, still reverberates in terms of where he is now and what Jerry Jones does now. And I don't know how much it has to do with that now, but I think that symbol of him being there when a school is trying to desegregate really says something about where we are in society, right? That that really wasn't that long ago. And maybe sometimes we need to keep that in mind a little bit more than we do, but it's hard for me to say that something that happened in 1957 is completely directly related to anything that Jerry Jones does now. And I think the, the one passage to me that stood out the most in that entire Washington Post story was when he was talking about basically the opportunities of becoming a head coach and saying it's who you know and it's this and it's that. And yes. how Jerry Jones sort of told this story of uh, in the um, little seminar, I don't know exactly what they call it, a symposium, right, that they had with black coaches and trying to get them more around team owners and things like that. And he told the story of, you know, how his old football coach, he got him to play at Augusta with a business partner that he was trying to have. And it's like, whoa, dude, like there's not really a way that you can have this opportunity with black coaches that would be something that they can actually relate to, you know, and it's sort of gatekeeping even more when you start giving an anecdote like that. And it just seems to me that Jerry Jones has this blind spot where he really believes that everybody can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, yes. no matter what. Yeah. And as a team owner, that to me is the most problematic thing because again, it, it all goes back to him saying, well, it's who, you know, you know, I wouldn't have hired, Dennis Green, because he was that great of coach. I mean, I knew him and I felt very comfortable with him. And it's like, well, that's part of the problem. 
So it, that the whole thing was very fascinating to me, but that's what stuck out to me the most from the story. You make, you make a very good point, Miles. And what I took away from the story, and look, I talked to Sally Jenkins on Sunday. I have tremendous respect for Sally Jenkins. She's one me of too. the titans in our business. No doubt. Um, but one of the things that she said to me, like, and I agree, a lot of people read that story and said, ah, Jerry is deflecting. Jerry said he was just curious. Jerry said this and all that. And look, I mean, the bottom line in this is I am not going to crucify a guy for standing on the steps of a school when he's 14 years old, when there's no evidence that he did anything more than be a bystander. And I'm not absolving him from being there. But if you grew up in the Jim Crow South and every day of your life, you are taught that black people are different from us because that's how Jerry Jones grew up. And then you get to high school and you are told, hey, black people now want to go to school with us. Whoa, whoa. I'm not going to stand for these inferior people going to school with us because that is the ethos of that period in the Jim yes. Crow South. So it's very, and look, Jerry Jones can't be proud of himself for hiring eight coaches, all of whom are white. You know, that's not, that's not great. But I think the best thing that Sally Jenkins illustrated in this story, and I'm just going to read this from this story, is that, you know, she said, my big takeaway is that Jerry talked about it. That's a victory. And she said, I found out what he said to be very blunt, very direct in this way, okay? That his whole point was the Rooney rule doesn't touch how we're making these decisions. Mm -hmm. I didn't hire Jimmy Johnson off an interview. I didn't hire Barry Switzer off an interview. And if I had hired Dennis Green, who he was thinking of hiring at one point um, after Jones and Switzer, if... Uh, it, when he ended up hiring Bill Parcells, by the way. I think this is post-Dave Campo. But his point was he had sat in on so many competition committee meetings with Dennis Green, who obviously was on the competition committee uh, as the coach first of Minnesota, then as the coach of the Arizona Cardinals. And he wasn't going to hire Dennis Green off a formal interview either. He knew Dennis Green. And he really liked Dennis Green. He liked his bluntness. He liked... What a tough guy he was. And so anyway, I only mention all those things because people who talk about Jerry Jones deflecting and not really answering all the questions, I mean, there was some of that in the story, but he did answer the most important question about this important Washington Post series. And that is, why haven't there been more black coaches hired? And that is because all the owners in the NFL, um, the vast majority of the owners are white males. And so we've got to find a way somehow. And Jerry Jones needs to be a part of that. If I read this story and I'm Jerry Jones, I, I'm Jerry. I said, we have to do more. The accelerator program is fine and it's good. And it'll continue next month at the NFL meetings in Dallas. The accelerator program is good, but there needs to be more done. So uh, I'm not, I don't mean enough of that, but our time is limited and we've got to move on. Um, so Joe Burrow, 
And there's no easy segue after that. But I want to ask you about Joe Burrow going into Tennessee two years in a row, winning 19 to 16 and 20 to 16, and making enough plays against a guy I consider to be a great coach, Mike Vrabel, who understands so much about how to stop great offensive forces. And he's made enough plays two years in a row. Actually, if you think about it, two times in 10 months in the playoffs last January and now uh, in the regular season. Tell me, first of all, Joe Burrow is a badass. He just is. You know, he doesn't care. He looks like the baby face killer. But I'll tell you, he really has earned my respect in his first three years in the NFL. I realize I'm handing this to you on a silver platter. What do you see when you look at Joe Burrow right now? Well, I I see one of the best young quarterbacks in the NFL, and I might be able to take that young marker off of him because I think the way he leads uh, gives so much confidence to everybody around him that they have this sense and belief that they're going to be able to get it done. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was so great about that game was the pass protection, right? You know, they go to Tennessee in January, Joe Burrow gets sacked nine times and somehow they still pull off that win. He was only sacked once in that game against Tennessee on Sunday. And that's something that they knew they had to get better at, right? Cincinnati's pass protection has fantastic come, point, by the way, by it, you. Great. It point. has it has gelled in a way that I don't know that we necessarily anticipated that it would at the beginning of the season. Think about that game against Dallas that they had. Right, that game that they started the season against the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's like, man, what's going on there? They didn't really fix anything. They have now. All those things have started to come together. And they played that game without Jamar Chase, without Joe Mixon. Samaje Pirine steps up huge, right? You know, you have T. Higgins, who has been a really good receiver since he came into the league. He steps up huge and has some great catches over 100 yards in that game. So that, I think, says a lot. But then also Tennessee's defense, excuse me, the Bengals defense just absolutely bottled up Derrick Henry. And when you can do that and stop him from really getting that head of steam into the second and third levels of the defense, which they really did. I mean, aside from that one screenplay, Derrick Henry just wasn't getting anything much past the line of scrimmage. That's what you have to do. So all those things combined to a really, really good performance out of Cincinnati. And now I, I, I feel like, Cincinnati starting to get on that same track where they were on last year, Peter, you know, where they start to feel real good about themselves getting into December. And that's exactly what you want. You want that positive energy for you heading into the postseason, And it looks like Cincinnati's going to have it. Look, you know, what is so interesting about what you, 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 that was, that was a great, great uh, analysis by you. Absolutely great. And I'll tell you why, because, It's amazing that a team without Jamar Chase uh, and without Joe Mixon, I mean, Joe Mixon three weeks ago scored five touchdowns in a game. Right. I mean, Joe Mixon is a vital part to that offense. And for the Bengals to have tightened up their pass pro uh, and to be able to win a very big game without those two weapons, I think is huge, especially... I mean, the Bengals 
have a very, very interesting... Of all the schedules down the stretch, Cincinnati's is the most interesting in the NFL. Let's just go through it. Let's just go through their last six games. And this is why I think Cincinnati might win the NFC, the AFC North by two games. They might lose the, the AFC North by two games. Because listen to this schedule. Kansas City at home. Mm-hmm. Cleveland and Deshaun Watson at home. And look, the Browns have had the Bengals number, yeah. you know, since Joe Burrow has been there, whatever it is, four or five yep. wins in a row, you know, yep. against the Bengals. At Tampa Bay, in a game the Bucks will desperately need. At New England, in a game the Patriots will desperately need. Then they finish at home. Buffalo at home. Most likely a game the Bills are really going to need. Maybe not to make the playoffs, but to win the division and to fight for the number one seed. And their last game, the game that I believe will be game 272 in the NFL. That's Mm. the last game of the last weekend of the regular season. Baltimore at Cincinnati, Sunday night football, January... Uh, January 8th, if you ask me, that's the best candidate for that game. But every one of those games is a fascinating, every one of those games is a 30 for 30 game 10 years (laughs) from now. It's so much fun. Anyway, I just, I, I realized that Sunday night when I was looking at the schedules and I said, that's what an unbelievable time. The Bengals are going to have down the stretch. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I, we should just move on to the next thing because we've only got three minutes and we got two more topics. All right, Miles, MVP watch. Do it every week in my column. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you two things. I'm going to ask you for your top three. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you for your top non-quarterback person in the MVP race. I'll give you my top three, and then I'm going to ask you yours, okay? okay? So my top three right now, number one, Patrick Mahomes, not by much over number two, Jalen Hurts, and then number three, Tua Tonga-Valoa. Let's hear your three with a reason or two why. I would say Mahomes number one, and part of that is because he's just having a better quarterback season than most other quarterbacks. Right. I mean, he's thrown for more yards, more touchdowns than anybody else. And that offense is running through him. I think it and this does not necessarily mean much, but I think what he did in terms of leadership over the term over the offseason really has a lot to do with how they're playing today. And maybe that's not a factor or maybe it shouldn't be a factor. But for me, it is. And I, I think that I don't know that there's anybody more valuable to their franchise than he is to that one. So that's why he's one for me. Then I go with Tua actually at number two. And part of it, I guess, is that in my mind, he's almost the most improved player, but you look at a lot of these rankings. I mean, he is the best in passer rating by a decent margin. And I think the way Mike McDaniel has coached him up has made him more valuable. And yes, he's got Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle and a lot of good weapons on that offense. And that offense is humming, but I just, I love the way he's improved 
And I think that that counts for something to me too, in terms of how valuable he is. Now, the third player on my list, and I say this with all due respect to Jalen Hurts, who I have a ton of respect for, and I think is playing great. But the third guy on my list actually wouldn't be a quarterback, and it'd be Justin Jefferson. And it's because he has propelled that offense to heights that it's never seen before. He's made Kirk Cousins so much better as a quarterback. And I don't know where the Vikings would be without him in particular. And I mean, you can say a lot about how well the defense has played in spots, Patrick Peterson doing things where he needs to, and you could, there's all, all kinds of other players on that Minnesota Vikings team. Dalvin cook does a great job running it. But Justin Jefferson makes some really amazing catches. He makes the routine catches. He makes the tough catches. And it's just all these yards that come from what he does. I mean, more yards now than any other play receiver in his first three seasons and there's six games to go. I think that puts him in the MVP conversation. You know, you now don't have to do the most valuable non-quarterback because you've done it putting Justin Jefferson third. And I like that. I really do like that. Um, my my person in my top five this week, Josh Allen was four. Justin Jefferson was five on my list. Uh, in this year, just so that everyone knows this, this year, the Associated Press, which is the curator of the annual NFL MVP award, they have 50 voters in the news media. I'm one of them. And they're asking us this year, instead of voting winner take all, only voting for one person in the, uh, you know, for MVP, uh, this year they're asking for five. So my five would include Justin Jefferson, five, Josh Allen, four, as well as the three aforementioned. The only thing that's standing in the way of me putting Tua ahead of either of those other guys is the fact that he's missed two and a half games. And the guys in front of him, in my mind, Hertz and Mahomes, haven't missed any uh, time appreciably. I don't think they, I don't think they've missed any time at all. Yeah. But and and the other thing is, you know, I was looking at this the other day, and if you think about it, you know, Jalen Hurts is not only a gigantic weapon in all ways. You know, he's on pace right now to run for 900 yards this year, which we've totally gotten used to quarterbacks like Justin Fields and Lamar Jackson. We've gotten used to quarterbacks being really proficient uh, runners with gaudy numbers. So we've we've gotten Mm -hmm. used to that. But I think we ought to to just realize that, you know, right now just uh, Jalen Hurts is, you know, has, has accounted for 25 touchdowns, 17 passing, eight running. Um, and he has turned the ball over in 10 games five times, two fumbles, three interceptions. I mean, he's taken care of the ball. He's lifted that franchise to the best record in football. Look, once you get down to this level, it's incredibly close, and I understand it, and nobody's right, nobody's wrong, but, man, I, I spent some time about, 215 Monday morning when I'm sitting there and I'm totally spent. I'm trying to finish my column. And I just said, now, you know, you put a lot of stock 
in a team's record and what a, a quarterback in particular has done to lift this team to that record. And right now, let's let's just let's say it like it is. You know, basically the the Kansas City Chiefs are nine and two and the Philadelphia Eagles are ten and one. That should count for a little something. Not everything, but why don't you have Hertz ahead of Mahomes? And I just watched Kansas City play and I just I just think Mahomes is is the man. I just you know, I just I can't get over all the stuff he does in all ways. Um, but anyway, look, I think at least you know what has happened? Like let's say Tua goes in and wins at San Francisco and beats the almighty defense. All of yeah. a sudden, missing two and a half games or not, all of a sudden you say, whew, two has got to be in that discussion right mm-hmm. now with Hertz and with, uh, and with Jefferson and with Mahomes. So I think it's going to be a fun race down the stretch. Here's my last point to you. I wrote this last week in my column, Travis Kelsey. He's on his way. He's only 88 yards away now in the last six games from his seventh consecutive season of 1,000 yards receiving. Now, think about this for a second. Rob Gronkowski in his life had 4,000-yard seasons. The great Tony Gonzalez in his life had 4,000-yard receivings, 1,000-yard receiving seasons. Travis Kelsey is having seven, he's going to have seven in a row. And yeah. look, I bet if, uh, if some of those other guys had played with Mahomes, they'd have had gaudier numbers. I get it. But I just think what Travis Kelsey has done and is doing, he, he, you know, he's gone from being, you know, I think he's going to be a Hall of Famer. To almost, I mean, you got to be kidding me. He's got to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. But I I just, we'll end the pod. I'm going to give you your 37 seconds on your impression of Kelsey and why he's so great. Well, as another kid from the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, I always like watching Travis Kelsey excel. It makes me feel a good sense of pride from my hometown. So... I, I, there's not much to say that hasn't been said about, you know, Travis Kelsey as, as Mike Tomlin loves to say, he needs no endorsement from me. But I think when you look at all the things and all the value that he provides for that offense, and it's not just the tough yards and Patrick Mahomes loves to say, you know, when Travis Kelsey's one-on-one, that's where I'm going. The fact that he can go out there and beat a guy like Jalen Ramsey in a very creative way and just say, okay, Patrick here, I'm open. And then boom, catches the ball, then runs down the field, bowls over a couple of defenders and gets into the end zone. It's that tough yardage there, but it's also the things that he does with blocking the consistency that he has been on the field with. It's so hard for tight ends to get that kind of yardage just based on the fact that they get beat up all the time. The fact that Travis Kelsey has had that kind of longevity. I mean, there's not much more you can say. It just, he's so darn good, you know, and he really has propelled himself to being one of the greatest tight ends of all time. If not the greatest, when it all ends up being said and done, I hope he's got a few good years left. 
I do too. And Miles, how incredible would it be if one day on the steps of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, there would be two Kelsey brothers standing there in gold Not out of the question. Not out of the question. I mean, look, Travis Kelsey is going to make it. Jason Kelsey has got a great case to be made for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And look, we got to go. But the interesting part of Jason Kelsey's case is the fact that, and look, I've been a voter for the Pro Football Hall of Fame for 30 years, and we get into some gaps. There was a period about eight years ago where we had gone 20 years and elected only one pure safety. So, and then, so now it's like, it's, you know, party time for safeties in the Hall of Fame. This year it's Leroy Butler. But centers have been not ignored, but they have been very lightly recognized for the Hall. And I think what what happened to safeties could very well happen to centers in the coming years. And I think Jason Kelsey could be a beneficiary of that. But we'll see. That's still probably seven years down the road. Uh, So we've got some time. But I would love to see those two guys stand together. Can you imagine what the family of the Kelsey family and, and honestly... What ever? What was their high school? I forget. Miles. Cleveland Heights High. Cleveland Heights High. It's across Cleveland the street Heights. from a Wendy's, which they have talked about on their podcast that I frequented because I used to take piano lessons over there. So I know exactly what they're talking about. And that'd be that would it's, be a hell of a awesome. celebration in Northeast Ohio if both of those dudes were oh. in the Hall of Fame. Because hey, look, look, I remember. Look, I we're way over time, but my last thing I will say this week. The first year I ever covered the NFL, I covered the Cincinnati Bengals. It was 1984. I watched practice in Wilmington College in Wilmington, Ohio, during training camp, virtually every day, interacting and sometimes watching an entire practice, standing next to Paul Brown in his big straw hat in the blazing sun uh, of the port capital uh, of Ohio, Wilmington, Ohio. And... It was funny, every year they had at the Clinton County Fair in Wilmington, Ohio, they gave a crown to a pork queen. And here's a question for you. Would it really be a great honor to be the pork queen uh, in Ohio? I'm not really sure about that. (laughs) But, But anyway, I don't know how in the world did we get into this, but... I'll tell you, this is one of the great non-sequitur discussions of all time. But I will never forget, because I got to know Paul Brown, I went to his wake, um, you know, a decade plus later uh, in uh, either Canton or Massillon. I forget. I think Massillon, Ohio. And the outpouring of grief and the lines of people there for Paul Brown I remember looking around that day and I'd say, only in Northeast Ohio. Football is borderline sacred right in this area. And look, just 38 miles away, 40 miles away, um, the road that you know very, very well, Miles Simmons, 
is where the Kelseys cut their teeth on football. And man, I, I, I don't go to the Hall of Fame that often, but when the second of them gets in, I, I really might go. I just love to see that. It'd be an emotional day. Anyway, Miles Simmons, thanks so much for this wild, crazy, all-encompassing podcast. It really could have been about three podcasts because yeah. we really went to town. And anybody who sticks with it all the way to the end, I am going to give you, if you did, I'm going to give you a lifetime subscription to the Peter King podcast presented by Salesforce. So just be in touch with me at peterkingfmia at gmail.com and your subscription will be coming. Anyway, Miles Simmons, thanks a million. And please come back next week for some more ridiculous meanderings into the mind of Peter King on the Peter King Podcast, presented by Salesforce. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.